But like I said, I'm, I'm excited to begin this new series with you, and, and as we think about the heart, I was reminded of this story about my dad. Uh, my brother from Indiana came, they had got a new jet ski, and so we spent uh, the day out at the lake jet skiing, tubing, uh, because we're brothers, throwing each other off of the tube and seeing who could do what, and, and we got my dad out there, uh, he was about in his mid-60s. And uh, he was flailing around and bouncing up and down and just having a good old time. And, you know, we thought my, our dad was the uh, picture of health. In fact, you would, uh, you would ask him, or you could, could have even asked him that day and said, hey, how, how, are, you, how are you feeling, Dad? And he would give his standard, standard answer, which was, I'm a healthy dude. <laughs> well, little did we know that there was a silent killer that was building up on the walls of his arteries that was beginning to strangle his heart. A couple days later, after being at the lake, we, um, he started feeling some pain in his shoulders, and so he went to the doctor. And the doctor said, well, you need to go to a back doctor. And so he went to the back doctor, <clears throat> and uh, the back doctor said, have you had a stress test? And so he went to the hospital to have a stress test. He's lying on the table, and they, they hook him up with all the wires, and they say, now, now Mr. Curry, you can, you can hop down and, and get to the, uh, to the treadmill. He hopped down, and the technician was like, whoa, wait a second. Stay where you are. You need to see a surgeon. So they took x-rays and, and, and whatnot, and, and the, the surgeon uh, looked at him and said, how would you feel about surgery tomorrow? And so almost a week after we had been having all this fun out at the lake, um, my dad, we saw my dad being wheeled into open heart surgery with a quadruple bypass. It was a scary time for our family. And we found out later that um, he had been taking some baby aspirin, and that was probably what kept him from having a heart attack out on the lake. And so it was a scary time for my family because we were like, this, this all happened so suddenly. But what we didn't realize is that it, it wasn't sudden, it was something that had happened over years of time, building, uh, clogging his arteries, strangling the life from his heart and his body. Well, now it's a, a constant reminder to me and, and my brothers that we need to take care of our hearts. And when we start saying, you know, well, we need to take care of our hearts, we think of, well, I need to change my diet. And, and um, <clears throat> you know, but every week there's a new study that comes out. You can eat this, you can't eat that. And then the next week you can eat that, but you can't eat this. And it's always changing. In fact, I read an article um, a few, few years back that did a study of the dieting trends that affect our health. Uh, the Japanese eat little fat and suffer fewer heart problems than Americans. The French eat a lot of fat and suffer fewer heart attacks than people in the U.S. The Italians drink a lot of red wine and also have a lower risk of heart problems than their Western neighbors. And so the conclusion of the study was you can eat whatever you want, but speaking English will kill you. <laughs> And so my dad, he started watching his weight and, and what he ate and, and began to exercise more. He had to give up some bad habits and introduce 
some new habits, some good habits into his life. You see, there's a lot we can do reading, researching, studying, eating, exercising our way to better health with the goal of strengthening and and protecting our physical hearts. But what about our other heart? The heart that's the core of who we are. What are we doing to protect and strengthen this part of us? You see, our heart is the most intimate and it's the most real part of us. It sets our attitudes, it drives our emotions, it determines our mindset, it houses our convictions, it steers our emotions. The heart gives life to everything else in our lives. It's a part of us that that swells with pride when we see our kids excel and and succeed. It's the heart that, it's the part that gets broken when when Sally down the street said, I just want to be friends. You see, life can be hard on our hearts, and over time we develop habits that can desensitize our hearts. And so in response, we listen to a father who teaches his son about living purposely and intentionally and protecting his heart. In Proverbs 4, we read these words, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. And then listen to what he says. He says, above all else, in other words, this is the main thing, the one thing, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. It affects everything you do, everything you are. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet. And be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or left. Keep your foot from evil. You see, it's a description of someone who's living life intentionally and and purposefully because guarding our hearts is not just about what we're feeding it, it's also what we're protecting it from. The saying is that nature abhors a vacuum, well, our hearts do too. You picture in in your backyard, back by the fence where nobody really goes or nobody really sees it, there's a big bare spot. And it's easy to forget about that bare spot. And so instead of raking it out and planting grass seed, we just, I just let it go. Well, we know what happens. It's filled with weeds, with crabgrass. It's, it's the same with our hearts. If you don't have a plan to fill your heart up every day, something or someone else will. And what's in our hearts, good or bad, is eventually translated into our words, our actions, and what we do. Because Jesus said, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the enemies of the heart and the habits that we need in our lives to overcome them. As Christian mentioned, we're loosely basing this series on a book by Andy Stanley, these conversations called uh, Enemies of the Heart. They're available if you want to grab a copy of that. But before looking at the first enemy of our hearts, I I think we need need a baseline. What does a healthy heart look like? And so in order to do that, I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, you can grab one from around you or uh, turn to your phone app. (laughs) Uh, 
Psalm 32. If you have trouble finding it, if you just open your Bible in the middle somewhere, you're going to fall pretty close to the Psalms. Psalm chapter 32. And if you look at the title of Psalm 32, it says something a little weird. It says, of David, a mascal. Well, we know that David was one of the greatest kings in Israel and, and uh, <clears throat> just had, he was a man after God's own heart. He pursued, he passionately pursued God in his life. Well, he says that he's written a mascal, which was a, te- a teaching song. In other words, he had this experience and he writes this song to instruct us, to teach us, to show us the way to deal with the enemies of the heart. And so he begins by describing a health, what a healthy heart looks like in verse 1. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in, in whose spirit is no deceit. And so we see the very first word of Psalm 32 is blessed. It's, it's this word that has such a rich meaning, it can't be translated by just one word. In other words, it says something like, how happy, or congratulations to, or good for the one who, or oh, the enjoyment of. Well, it's interesting, it's also in the plural, so we could say, oh, the multiple happinesses, <laughs> bundles of blessings. And the idea is we're blessed when we, when we fo- have a heart that follows God and when we do the right thing, and yet, when we sin and we do mess up and we allow God to make our heart right with Him, we're blessed as well in His forgiveness. And see, the words David uses to suggest that, that God has offered to bring strength and inner peace to our hearts by lifting the guilt from us, by carrying it away, by putting it out of sight and counting us as his own. And Jesus took the debt we owed upon himself and paid it in full so that we might experience and know forgiveness and peace with God. You see, our hearts were made to be in relationship with God, to find peace with Him through His forgiveness. But the problem is, is that we do have these subtle enemies that sneak into our hearts and and they, they strangle the life that God has created us to have. Left on their own, these enemies grow in power and influence. And so the first enemy of the heart that we want to look at this morning is guilt. We want to look at guilt. Gil Hodges, the manager of the Washington Senators, loved to tell a story about a time when he discovered that four of his players had broken curfew. So he immediately called a team meeting and said, okay, I know there's four guys who broke curfew. I know who you are, and I don't want to embarrass you, so I'm going to put a cigar box on my desk. You know that by breaking curfew, there's a, there's a fee of $100. So you four people, I expect your money in that cigar box by the end of the day. Well, at the end, it came at the end of the day, and, and Gil went into his office. He checked the cigar box, and he found $700. <laughs> you see, we're, we're guilty people, <laughs> We're we're guilty of bad thoughts, false statements, hurtful actions. Mostly, we're guilty before a pure and holy God having fallen short of His perfection. 
We stand in the need of forgiveness. We stand in the need of grace. You see, guilt is the result of of having done something we perceive as wrong. And the message from a heart burdened with guilt is, I owe you. I owe you something. I mean, what do we say when we hurt someone or offend someone? We say, I owe you an apology. Because there's a debt. Uh, our, Our hearts tell us that we've taken something from them, and now we owe. We're in debt. Guilt reminds us of our indebtedness. Consider the man who runs off with another woman and abandons his family. You see, without realizing it, he's stolen something from every member of his family. He's robbed his wife of the vows that he had made with her. He's robbed her of her dreams and security and the future that they had together. From his children's perspective, perspective, their dad has stolen time from them. Traditions, Christmas's family, and on and on it goes. But you ask the dad, and he's like, oh, no, it's all about what I've gained. And he doesn't think about what he's taken from his family. But here's the thing. The first time his little girl asks him, Daddy, why why don't you love Mommy anymore? It strikes his heart. He feels guilt. He feels the weight of his indebtedness. You see, he's in debt to his little girl, to his family. And nothing less than paying that debt will relieve a guilty heart of its burden of guilt. You see, no amount of good deeds, community service, generous giving, Sundays at church can relieve the guilt. It's a debt. And so nothing less than exposing it and dealing with it, that dealing with the debt firsthand will relieve the guilty heart. Another story tells of a man who pulled a prank on 20 of the most famous men in, in London, and his prank went like this. He simply wrote 20 notes and sent them to their homes, and the notes said, I know what you did. You better leave town. <laughs> the story goes that by the next morning, all 20 men had left town. <laughs> and that, we hear stories like that, and it it's like scares us, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever had someone say, hey, I really need to talk to you? And if you don't have a context, you're like, what do they need to talk to me about? And we start to do this personal assessment of, of everything we might have said or done wrong and, and, or what we might guilty of that this person needs to talk to us about. What did I do? You see... Guilt's a terrible thing for us to carry. So many people carrying a sense of dread, obsessed by a memory of some sin committed in the past, hidden but never really out of sight. It never leaves them. You see, guilt is one of the most crippling diseases among people today. Even psychiatrists and counselors and and doctors say that unresolved guilt, guilt that hasn't been dealt with, lingering guilt is the number one cause of mental illness and suicide today. You see, just like the plaque building up in our arteries, guilt begins to strangle the life from our hearts. So we know David, who wrote the psalm, was a man who was passionate for God, but just like any one of us, at any moment, he made some decisions that would begin to strangle his heart. Psalm 32 comes after he went through one of the lowest, most difficult times in his life. 
If you want to read the story, it's found in, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, but also if you grab one of our study guides, I'd encourage you to grab one of these today and uh, just work through it with us as we go through this series. And you'll be going through 2 Samuel 11 and, and 12 through the study guide. But I just want to give a quick summary of the story. Many of you may be familiar with it. But David is king, and he sent his troops out into battle. He sent them out to the front lines. And, and uh, he's not there. He's back at the palace, and he gets bored. And so one night, he's, he's wandering around the, the rooftop just looking for something to do, and, and he notices something over here going on. And he, he goes to investigate, and he sees a woman is taking a bath. And he likes what he sees, and so he has her invited back to the palace. And this married woman and this married man have an affair, and they commit adultery together. Well, as a result, she becomes pregnant with David's, fa- with David's baby, and he's got to hide it. Can't let the husband know and try some different things to trick the, the husband and, and uh, <clears throat> finally... Because he's fighting out in the battle, David orders his generals, put, put him out at the front in the fiercest part of the battle and then withdraw from him. And so here you have this man, I, I think about Uriah, this man, and I think about him fighting along with his buddies and the, they're fighting and the, the fierce and things are going on and, and all of a sudden <laughs> he's surrounded by the enemy and he's struck down and killed. And so now all of a sudden, David is not just an adulterer, but he's a murderer as well, but he's hidden it well. Nobody nobody seems to know his secret. And a year goes by of David hiding his guilt, feeling the weight of it. And it's been buried underneath the cover of time until God sends the prophet Nathan to confront the king. And Nathan Nathan tells... tells David, God knows what you've done, David. He sees your heart. He saw what you did. And David, being confronted and feeling the weight of his sin, falls to his face and openly admits his guilt. And so we see the story of sin. We, we see this story as a, it's a story of the weight of guilt, but it's also a story of the joy of being set free from regret and shame. It's a story that I think is repeated in our own lives in varying degrees. And so in Psalm 32, after David describes what a heart given to God looks like, he reminds us of this terrible burden of guilt. And he says in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. And he's reflecting on those times when he chose to keep quiet about his sin, when he was hiding it, and they were painful. And the word groaning here is, is, means the roar of a wounded animal. You see, the effects of guilt are crushing. For one thing, guilt destroys trust. Because he can't trust himself, the guilty person finds it difficult to trust anyone. They assume everyone else has a secret. Everyone else must be up to something because I'm up to something. Also, guilt builds walls of isolation, not community. 
No one can get close. I'm, I'm too busy trying to protect my lie, and so I become distant and distracted, and it affects all of my relationships. Guilt destroys confidence. A guilty person becomes fearful because he's covering lies with more lies and more lies, and he's always worried that he's going to get caught in his lie or somebody's going to find out what he's like or what he's done. It's interesting, Proverbs 28 is very descriptive when it says that the wicked man flees though no one pursues. <laughs> he runs away, but there's nobody chasing him. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Finally, guilt, guilt keeps us stuck in the past because we continually replay our sins over and over in our minds. Someone has said, just as worry can't change the future, guilt can't change the past, but it can make you miserable today. And as a result, our, our, our bodies respond to this in the form of upset stomachs and headaches and high blood pressure, and guilt produces this incredible stress. And see, God's hand can bring blessing, but it also can bear down on us, but he does it for a reason. Because you see, he takes us where we are, and, but he loves us too much to keep living the way we are. He loves us too much to, to keep us trying to, the co- that we keep trying to cover our sin and, and guilt. And God says, no, take care of it. And so this is the positive side of guilt. Guilt alerts us to take care of our debts. You see, guilt is a, is a God-given response to sin and, and listened to can be very constructive. Like pain, guilt tells us, hey, there, there's something wrong going on in your heart. And it motivates us to take care of business in our hearts. It moves us to change. I, said, I think we have a great picture of this when the, the Apostle Paul writes a severe letter. It's a harsh letter to a church in the city of Corinth. He has some difficult things to say to them because things, things weren't going well in the church. There were some, some arguing and bickering and some sin and things. And so we hear their response. And Paul says, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, alarm, longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And Paul lays it out for us. He says, there's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. And he says, worldly sorrow only regrets getting, get, getting caught. It weeps over the consequences of getting caught. It never grieves over the wrong committed. In fact, it, it shoves us into a spiritual grave. But godly sorrow leads to life. When we experience godly sorrow, we're, we're deeply grieved by the wrong that we've done. We desire forgiveness to repair the damage, to, to make rep, reparations for the harm done. Because godly sorrow leads to change. And the word that the Bible uses for this is the word repentance, and repentance is just simply turning away from sin and turning back to God. 
And see, but there's a direct correlation between guilt and sin and repentance that I think our, our culture has lost in the sense of, of, of saying we're sorry. I, I was thinking about this in the times when uh, my brothers and I would, would start fighting or do something and against each other, and our mom or dad would say, you know, you tell them you're sorry. Well, you know how it goes. I'm sorry, right? I didn't mean that, but we said the words. And I think it's become indicative of our, of our culture that, that we use sorry for all kinds of things, like, oh, sorry, we're out of ketchup. Oh, sorry that you're being too sensitive, right? And yet, <clears throat> sorry originally meant I'm experiencing sorrow over this. I'm experiencing grief for what I did to you or what I said to you. I, I feel it. You see, godly Apollos, apologies come from godly sorrow, which results in repentance, a change, a turnaround in our actions and words. At the heart level, it involves rearranging our choices, our thoughts, our attitudes and actions around God's heart. You see, repentance is different than just saying sorry. It goes beyond excuses. It begins to deal with the issues. And I, I like to think of it like this, that, you know, have you ever been going, driving down a country road, and you see a yellow warning sign in the distance? And that yellow warning sign probably has buckshot holes in it. It's, it's rusting. It's got streaks. And, you know, it's been there a long time. But as you get closer, you begin to see the warning written on it, and it's one word in bold, big letters. It simply says, bump. <laughs> well, why is it there? Well, it's warning you that the pavement's uneven ahead, and you don't want to ruin the, the bottom of your car or go flying off this bump. And so it says, bump. But think about it. You know, someone years ago had to have a sign made. They came out to this section of the road, and they planted this warning sign, bump. So instead of doing the work to eliminate the bump, they put up a sign. And now it's become a permanent fixture. Why? Because it's easier to put up a sign than it is to fix the problem. You see, I think we do this in our lives in different ways. We, we put warning signs in our own lives of, man, I have a short temper, you know, so you better be careful around me, bump. I've got, the, I've got a problem when it comes to getting along with certain kinds of people. You know, you just have to accept me that way, bump. Well, you know, I, I could never keep my mouth shut, bump. It's just the way I am, bump. Well, you know, I'm Italian, I'm German, I'm Scottish, I'm Irish, bump. It's how I grew up, bump. There's nothing I can do about it, bump. You see, some people proudly announce that they have a bump in their lives, in their character, their attitudes, but they don't want to do anything about changing or getting rid of the bump. It's an excuse not to change. And so we just put up a sign and we never ask God to help us deal with our heart. 
You see, the turn from what's wrong to what's right begins with understanding God's heart, having godly sorrow and seeking change. You see, God-given guilt gives us, gets us up on our feet. It motivates us to do what's right. It keeps us moving forward because, as Paul said, godly sorrow leaves no regret. You see, we don't have to live with lingering guilt. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, God assures us, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Woo! Right? When we hear those words, our, our spirit, our soul should rejoice. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My heart has been freed. I have been forgiven. God no longer holds it over me. Later on in that same chapter, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, nothing. And he lists all of these things, and he says, absolutely nothing, nothing at all, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? In other words, there's a solution to guilt. You see, after, after David talks about what a healthy heart looks like, and he says, man, I was weighed down with the guilt of my sin when I tried to hide it, but man, I confessed it to the Lord. Listen, he says this in verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, my sin. I said, I will confess my transgressions, my sin to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. In other words, confession rearranges our heart around Jesus. And to confess literally means to say the same thing that, that God says about your sin. When we confess, we're saying, God, you're right. I'm wrong. But you were right about my sin. Help me to change. And notice David takes personal responsibility. He exposes it for what it is when he says, my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions. It's not a mistake. It's not an error. It's not a lapse in judgment. It's sin. But the good news is that confession leads to genuine change. Confession is more than informing God that we've sinned. It also involves turning away from it. You see, the ultimate goal of confessing our sin to God is change. Without change, we might as well pray prayers like this. Dear Heavenly Father, you know, I messed up. I blew it. I sinned. I recognize that. I agree with you. It was wrong. God, I feel sorry for it. But I just want to let you know that, that I'm going to do it again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? You see, confession without change doesn't really deal with the sin. I mean, listen to what Jesus said about dealing with sin. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Whoa. I mean, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? Is it any wonder that, that people were astonished at Jesus' teaching? And now Jesus is using something called hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a point. He's not really asking us to, to pluck out our eyes or cut off our limbs. 
Because if so, we would be a church of blind amputees. But what he's talking about is this radical amputation. In other words, taking sin so seriously that we're willing to do the hard thing and remove the bump. I have a friend who's asked me to to keep him accountable concerning some things that he's struggled with. Recently, he sent a text that said, hey, man, I I messed up. And my initial response was to say, hey, that's okay. We, We all mess up. But in my heart, I realized, you know, there's, there's got to be more to it than that. And so <laughs> I assured him, man, I, I care about you, brother. I love you. I wanna, I'm going to continue to pray for you. And then I said, what, what can you do to make sure to limit the temptation next time? And I was amazed that, that within seconds I, I got an answer right back and gave me a plan of what needed to be done to radically amputate this from his life. <laughs> it's like I sat there in my office and it's like, this is, this is awesome. I mean, he didn't try to cover his sin and say, here, I, I did this, I'm ashamed, let me tell you. He, <clears throat> he didn't cover his sin. He said, let me tell you what I'm going to do about it. And when we begin to own up to our messes and our bad decisions and sins, when we're willing to expose them, to confess them to God and to others, and we're willing to change, it's like giving a high-altitude mountain climb or a a bottle of oxygen. It begins to give life and, and energy and revigorates his body and his heart that's been strangled and struggling. I love that he has the guts to come clean. I love that he's willing to remove the bump sign and create change in his heart. In James 5.15, the Bible says, confess your sins to each other. Let's be honest, this scares us too, doesn't it? I mean, we like our private time of confession because we, we can keep our sin hidden. We can avoid embarrassment. But you know, maybe that's exactly what we need in order to deal with sin and guilt in our lives. You see, if I know I'm going to have to expose who I really am to another person, I'm going to be motivated to change. And so the habit we need to develop to guard our hearts from lingering guilt is the habit of confession to God and to one another, to people that maybe we've wounded, people we've hurt, people we've offended, to the people who want to help us. Because at the end of the day, genuine confession leads to genuine change. David's heart was freed when he confessed his sin, but there was was still consequences. There were still things that he had to go through because our sin is never private. It has an effect on everyone around us. And despite the mess he made, though, David allowed God to go to work in his heart. And so when we come to the very first verse of the second section of the Bible, the New Testament, and we come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, you know, the adulterer and murderer who really messed up. No, (laughs) it doesn't say that at all, does it? God did not keep holding that against him. And I picture David singing, Oh, the happinesses of those whose sins are forgiven. You see, guilt is like this, this block of ice kept in a dark, cold place that remains hard, but brought into the light, identified and confessed. It begins to melt and eventually disappears. 
because confession releases us from the stranglehold of guilt. David goes on to say, I I confess my sin to the Lord. He forgave me. In verse 6, therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You, God, will protect me from trouble, surround me with songs of deliverance. In other words, if we can experience freedom from guilt, isn't it obvious? Let's pray. David's saying, let's pray before our hearts become too hardened to listen and we can no longer hear God's voice. You see, God is our hiding place. And isn't it interesting that David begins the psalm hiding his sins from God? And he ends the psalm hiding himself in God. You see, sin in the heart takes the singing out of the heart. And when the guilt of sin was weighing David down, he lost his joy, he lost his song. But when he began to take care of his heart and he began to rearrange his heart around God, God surrounds him with his songs of deliverance, his songs of salvation, his songs of freedom, his songs of life, his songs of hope, his songs of joy. So that David concludes with these thoughts. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Don't be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. In other other words, when David was stubborn, God reined him in and pulled him into repentance and life change. So that, the very last verse, so rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. You see, God surrounds the man who trusts him with unfailing love. And we can't help but respond with joy and worship. You see, in 1 John 1, 9, we read these words, if we confess our sins, he, God, He's faithful and just. It means he's true to his character. He'll do what he says. That's what we sang earlier. All his promises are yes and amen. He's true to who he is. And so if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, when we stop hiding from God and stay close to Him by cultivating a spirit of surrender and submission, when we rearrange our hearts around God, when we take time to pause and listen, we we begin to hear His songs. And when we start hearing God sing to our soul, we can't help but know His joy. I ask the band to come out as as we wrap it up here. But in summary, guilt can be an enemy to our hearts, but it's also a warning that motivates us to rearrange our hearts around His. We don't have to live with lingering guilt and unresolved guilt and shame. Because in Jesus we find forgiveness, in Jesus we find life, in Jesus we find hope and joy. And so we develop this habit of confession with change in order to guard our hearts. And maybe you're this morning and something's strangling the life out of you. Maybe there's something in your past that has a chokehold on your heart this morning. 
Don't you want to be released from that? Take care of the bump. Get rid of the sign. Take care of the bump. And today, determine to expose it, to correct it, and change it. Embracing God's forgiveness, embracing God's grace. I mean, think about the freedom you'll experience when when guilt loses its stranglehold on your heart and and through the habits of confession and, and accountability and change, your heart finds peace in God. Let's pray together just going to ask you where you're at to pray with me this morning. I just want to ask you to thank God for who he is. Thank you, Father, for sending your son so, who gave his life so that we might have freedom, so that we might have life, so that we might have forgiveness that we no longer have to live with this guilt, but we can have peace with you and be called children of God. Father, thank you. Thank him for those things. This morning, if there's something in your heart this morning that you feel is just building up on the walls of your heart, strangling the life and the joy from your heart. Will you give that to God? Just say, God, just talk to him. Say, God, I'm tired of living this way. Help me to change. Give me the strength. Give me the boldness to do what needs to be done, whether it's embarrassing or not, to approach that person, to to apologize, to, to feel the weight of it, to deal with it, expose it once and for all to find your forgiveness. Let's give it to him this morning. Ask for his strength. His help. Father, I thank you that you hear our cries for help. Lord, even when we come to you with a heart that's racked with guilt and strangled with shame. Lord, I thank you that you hear our prayers. Lord, help us to to walk right with you. Lord, help us to experience the joy of our salvation and deliverance and freedom that we have in Jesus and, and, and stop trying to hide these things, but give them to you and to make reparations where necessary. Father, I thank you that that Jesus is the hope of our hearts. He is the life, the freedom to our lives. So Father, help us to rearrange our hearts around you and pursue you always. God, I love you too. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.